everyone. Welcome. <clears throat> Welcome, everyone, uh, to New Valley Church. My name is Scott. So good to be with you guys this morning. Happy New Year to you all. Uh, and uh, thank you, Brent, for, uh, Brent, for your... Uh, we have a Brent here this morning and a Brett, so sorry, uh, uh, for the Global Outreach Team update. I am so excited about this team. Um, in the last year, they have uh, taken, I feel like we've gone from zero to 100 in terms of our effectiveness of how we communicate, the, the, the missionaries that we're supporting, and our communication with those missionaries, uh, and just the interaction, the evaluation of new missionaries. Like, it's just been so, it's been such a great blessing, this team, and, and they're doing such a great job. So thank you. For your announcements, thank you for encouraging us. I do encourage you. Uh, yeah, let's clap because Brent loves that. So uh, Brent loves that too. Uh, so anyway, they, uh, yeah, consider going to that and being a part of that. Like, and I know like it's a scary thing. Like, oh no, if I go to a missions thing, uh, maybe God's going to call me. You know, and you know what? God's sovereign. You can't run from him. So if he's going to call you, he's going to call you. Just go. You're, you know. Just go. Anyway, uh, I also wanted to say at uh, the end of the year of, of 2019 was a, an enormous blessing for us financially uh, as a church. We don't talk a ton about money here, but I just wanted to say we had planned to run a deficit, um, and we did that um, on, on purpose, really. And we and it finished the year basically uh, just barely not running a deficit, which is a huge uh, uh, blessing. We had planned to run a $40,000 deficit to spend some money out of savings to hire, uh, hire Pastor Caleb. And, and yet we uh, are this close to having not, which is an, an enormous, enormous blessing. So I give God great thanks and praise for that. And uh, thank you as well. We are growing. It's an astounding number to hear that 550 adults call this place home. And we have about 100, 100 kids uh, actively involved in the, in the children's ministry. I mean, this is an amazing thing that God is doing here. And we truly give him thanks and praise. But today we're going to be talking about what true greatness is. I think it relates uh, to this conversation, right? Because we know a church is not great because of numbers or what they do or how they do it or even effectiveness in ministry. Uh, what some, and the same is true of an individual. What makes people great? What makes churches great? What's, what makes humanity great? And so we're going to look at chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark, verses 30 through 41. And today is also a great day in the life of the church as we're adding two new ruling elders. We call them ruling elders and teaching elders. Teaching elders are pastors, and ruling elders are, are uh, uh, men who volunteer to serve in the church and to help shepherd and pastor the church as overseers, as elders, as pastors. And we are ordaining two new ruling elders. We're adding to Scott Delaney and Ken Easterly, uh, John Klinkhammer, and David Simonello today. So a great, a great day uh, for us. Let's read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Uh, because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to see three things from this passage today. We're going to see um, the greatest problem, at least one of the greatest problems that humanity faces, and the greatest calling and the greatest love. And the first is the greatest problem. And our main point this morning really is this, that one of our greatest problems in life is our search of greatness. In our search for greatness, we're often searching for the wrong things because we often want to be great. And by by that, we don't mean that we want to be the best that God has made us to be or to fulfill our calling, our vocation. We usually mean it in competition with other people. I want to be the greatest in my office. I want to be the greatest basketball player. I want to be the greatest this or the greatest that. But it's usually in reference to other people. And in order for me to achieve that greatness, it means that I must be the greatest over other people. So our very idea of greatness is often troubled. And so as Jesus and the disciples make their way through Galilee, and and, in the second half of the Gospel of Mark Jesus is now turning his focus from ministry and Capernaum and Galilee and sort of his home base and now is setting his face towards the cross. And he reiterates that by telling us the Son of Man will be handed over to men and he must die. So as they make their way through Galilee, he began to teach them again, the Son of Man must be handed over to men. And that's a description of the Passion Week, of what Jesus will suffer on our behalf Ultimately, though, I want you to know that the Father is the one who handed Jesus over. It, God is God. Jesus was, is fully God. And so when Jesus was handed over, it's not as if they took him by force, although they did from a human perspective. Ultimately, you need to know that it was the Father's will, the Father's love for the world that handed Jesus over to the hands of evil men. It says in Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son but handed him over for us all. And each one of us really has handed him over in some sense by our own sin. And right there among Jesus sharing with the disciples about him being handed over to the hands of men, they give this vibrant illustration as to why he had to be handed over into the hands of men and be crucified and died on our behalf. They give this perfect description because right then, after Jesus is teaching them, I'm going to suffer, die, and rise for you, they go on to argue about who is the greatest among them. And they're obviously not joking, or Jesus would have given them a little bit of grace. I mean, people, we love to to joke around and like, I'm the great. But like, what does that even look like for the disciples to argue about who's the greatest? I'm way better at healing people than you are. (laughs) You know, Peter's like, you know, your style is really bad. When you healed that guy, I mean, it was really lame. Like, he only got partially healed. I don't know. What does it mean to be the greatest disciple? Who is the greatest quarterback? We'll discuss this in a minute. Who's the greatest business person in the world? Who's the greatest CEO? Who's the greatest politician? Who's the greatest leader? Who's the greatest guitarist? Who's the greatest actress? Who is the greatest on Instagram and YouTube? And what's interesting is you think about these things, and we, we do think about these things a lot, and we discuss them a lot, actually, and we compare ourselves to other people, and it's always in reference to people doing stuff. And rarely in reference to who they are as a person. 
in their character. And really, as we prepare ourselves to think about this passage this morning, the question I want us to wrestle with is, who is the greatest person in the world to you? Who has been the greatest? And I'm not talking about quarterback or power or money or influence or leadership or preaching. or like Who has been the greatest person for you in your life? If you were to lose someone, and perhaps you have lost this person, who would represent the greatest loss in your life? And then as you evaluate what makes that person great, what's interesting and ironic is you'll find, I think, from most people's perspective, actually, that the way we value greatness is often in alignment with the way Jesus values greatness. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. As you really think of the people that matter the most to you, the greatest loss that would be represented to you, it's that family member or that friend that has loved you, that has served you, that has been selfless, that has given their life over for you. And you'd say, of all the people I know, they're the greatest. So who is that person in your life or a group of people? And then ask yourself, why is it so difficult to be like that person? Because it is. It's very difficult. In a very good book and a very funny book by uh, an author and a pastor named John Ortberg, he he wrote this book, The Life You Always Wanted, and then Spiritual Disciplines for Ordinary People. And he wrote this. There were three men, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, and they all suffered from a Messiah complex. And it wasn't just a touch of narcissism or a dash of grandiosity. Each one maintained that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Each one believed he was the central figure around whom the world revolved, the three little messiahs. And John Orberg writes about this psychologist, Milton Raukek, who wrote a book called The Three Christ of Ypsilanti, and about his attempts to help these three men get over themselves and to learn to just be Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, and not the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. So with little to lose, he decided to try an experiment, and he put all three men into one small group, the same three guys in the same small group. And for two years, these three delusional messiahs were assigned adjacent beds. They ate every meal together. They worked together at the same jobs, and they met daily for group discussions, a kind of messianic 12-step program. And one of the men would say, I'm the messiah. I'm the son of God. I'm on mission. I was sent here to save the world. And the doctor would ask, how do you know? And one of these men would say, because God told me. And then one of the other patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. (laughs) So to maintain that you're the Messiah, Orberg writes, you must shut out any evidence to the contrary. If you want to be your own God, you have to settle for living in a little tiny universe where there's no room except one person. And then he says this, I have my own sort of Messiah complex, and it's not the kind that gets you sent to Ypsilanti, but in its own way, it's as serious and irrational as the the dilemma of Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. And the truth is, we all do. And again, probably none of us are dealing with this kind of narcissism or this, this level of grandiosity, but we all are wrestling with this. We arrive at this kind of hardwired, me-first attitude as if the world revolves around us. And if you think this isn't just sort of a part of humanity, I want you to do an experiment for me, okay? First of all, get married. Second of all, have a baby. And that's it. Just watch. Watch what happens. (laughs) We are hardwired 
for a self-orientation and grandiosity and making life all about us. You don't have to teach an infant child to be selfish or to say me or mine or no. We just come hardwired for this. And we're all like this. So it's the sin of pride, really, which C.S. Lewis said is not simply a sin, but it's sort of the sin that is behind every other sin. And he said it's the, it's the complete anti-state of, uh, anti-God state of mind. And he argued that pride actually leads to every single other vice that we deal with, every other sin. Back to who is the greatest quarterback of all time. So I'm a Colts fan and I'm a Cardinals fan. The longer I've lived here, I'm really a Cardinals fan. And, but I, I have grown up in Indiana and I love the Colts. And there was a time in my life where I would have said, there is, there's a sound argument to be made that either Tom Brady or Peyton Manning is the greatest. And I definitely leaned, leaned towards Peyton Manning. But at this point in my life, and this is painful for me to say, and some of you are going to rejoice in this, but Tom Brady is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time and when it comes to quarterbacks. This is just the facts, people. Like six Super Bowl wins, four Super Bowl MVPs, three NFL MVPs, 14 Pro Bowls, 207 regular season wins, and 30 postseason wins. He is the greatest of all time. And yet just this week, as he's ending his own regular season and did not make the playoffs at the age of 42, He is saying on Twitter and other places, he's saying things like, I still have so much to prove. He literally is, in my opinion, the greatest athlete at this position of all time. And yet there's this sense in which it's never enough. It's never enough. The disciples' definition of greatness as a follower of Jesus is obviously much different than Jesus' definition. And we know what it means to be the greatest quarterback of all time. Just look at the stats, look at the championships, look at the effectiveness. But what does it mean to be a great disciple of Jesus? And really, let's, let's broaden that because when Jesus would say, what does it mean to be a great follower of me? Ultimately, what he's saying is, what does it mean to be a great human being? What does it mean to live fully into the idea that God had for humanity when he created us? And the disciples' definition of greatness, sadly, as a follower of Jesus, is so much different than Jesus' definition. But I want you to stop and think about this, because as this book got written, it was written by a man named Mark, who is working as an assistant to the apostle Peter. And Mark is ruthless in including this story, and it's a repeated story of how often they got into arguments like this and were so petty. After hearing a sermon on Jesus, says, I'm going to suffer and die. And then they begin to argue about who is the greatest among them. Imagine it. Mary Healy, a commentator that I've been reading throughout this series, says this, Mark does not display the disciples' failures so his readers can marvel at their ineptitude, although we do. Rather, it's to bring us face-to-face with our own human tendencies to seek our own glory in competition with other people, which hinders us from yielding ourselves to God's marvelous plan. And this is the thing that each one of us so profoundly needs to learn and to meditate on and to grow in is that God's plan for our life and God's will for our life is marvelous. It's beautiful. It's what life was intended to be like. And yet there is something so hardwired in us that says it can't be like that. 
it can't be in giving my life away. It can't be in serving other people. It can't be in lessening my own glory and lifting others up and ultimately in glorifying God. But that is where true beauty and goodness and joy and happiness and contentment is found. Jesus responds by showing us that his economy, what he values, is completely different than ours when it comes to greatness. He takes a child. They're back in a house. They, get to, they go through Galilee. They get to Capernaum. They're in their home base again, and they're in one of the disciples' homes, and there's a child there. It's probably one of the disciples' children. And he takes the child and holds this child, and he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And in the ancient Near East, children were considered less than, not really taking on personhood until they became adults. No status, no legal rights, no power. Even if they're your own children, you kind of treated them like slaves or servants. And yet, that's exactly how Jesus defines greatness, being a servant. So what is greatness in our culture? And we know but I want, I, I want us to not only evaluate it in terms of like our culture's got it all wrong and our culture's so stupid and so, you know, so backward and to really focus it on our hearts. Of course, this is how our culture defines greatness, but how are you defining greatness? How am I? Winning. Giftedness. Beauty. Power. Money. Fame. Stuff. And we know this is how our culture, there's some other words that we could use to describe. We know this is how our culture is defining greatness, but what about us? If we're honest, what about us? To receive a child in my name, what does he mean by that as it relates to greatness? And it's to lovingly serve and care for those who are in the most need and cannot repay it. If you, if you want to be great in God's economy, if you want to be great in Jesus', the, G, Jesus view of greatness, if you want to be a great disciple, if you want to be a great human being, it comes not empowering up. It's not about being better than others. It's not besting people. It's, it's actually found in serving those, even those people that really you'll never, never get anything in return from. We know how politics works. You know, if I'll scratch your back. If you scratch mine, I'll do this thing for you if you'll do this for me. But that's not what this is about. This is about let me serve those that I may never get anything in return for. And Jesus says, this is greatness. The next thing, the greatest problem is the way that we define greatness and the, the things that we're pursuing that they seem great, but they just aren't great, according to the one that created us. And then the greatest calling to be great in the kingdom of God is utterly and completely different from the world's understanding of greatness. In the world, we seek to be the best, better than everyone else. And, and most of us are not in a competition to be the greatest of all time. Like, you know, I have to be the Tom Brady of whatever, but like, but at least, you know, we say, I want to be the greatest in my sphere of influence. I want to be the greatest in my family. I want to be the greatest in my school. I want to be the greatest here. But again, it's always in relationship to competition with other people. And it's good to strive. It's good to want to be great, to be the best person that you can be. But what does it look like? What does it look like? What is true greatness? What does it mean to be called to greatness? 
And I found it ironic that this was our passage today as we're about to install two new elders in our church. Two, two new men who we're going to literally set aside today, lay hands on, ordain. This is what we call this biblically and functionally in the church, where we will, they will kneel here and on their knees and we will lay hands on them and pray for them, setting them apart as shepherds, overseers, pastors in this church. So what does greatness look like in our context, in the kingdom of God? What does that look like? How, how do we evaluate calling people to ministry, right? What does that look like? In many churches, and, and I'm not trying to say we've got it all right and that we always make the best choices or whatever because that's just not the facts, but like uh, in many times, in many places, in many churches, the way we evaluate is like head knowledge that, hey, this person should be a leader in our church because they've read all of Calvin's uh, you know, writings in Latin, or they have, uh, uh, have all this incredible giftedness, or they have all these degrees tied to their name. They're killers in business. They've made a ton of money. And this passage is a warning. That's not what greatness is in my kingdom. It's not that we're looking for people that don't know the Bible at New Valley or you know, hate theology or have been total failures in business. That, that's not what we're saying. But we're saying is, church, for a church to be healthy, we should evaluate people in ministry, not according to the world standards, but like, Who's serving? Who's loving other people? Who's, who's teaching with no title attached? Who's shepherding? Who's discipling? Who's counseling? Who's praying? Who's caring? Who's leading? With whether they get the recognition or not. And I want to say that I'm so excited that as we add these two brothers today, but also the men that have been on this team throughout our history, I really can say, and we're all sinners and broken, and, but that really is true of each one of them, and that they, they love well, and they've not been seeking the title or power or influence, because frankly, it's, it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of service, and so we're blessed to have such great elders. I have to remind myself of what greatness is when I walk into a room of pastors, <laughs> and I wish I could say to you that pastors are not in competition, that we all just walk with God's value of what it means to be a disciple and, and, the, and value what God has determined as greatness. But I often have to remind myself, if, if I'm going to a meeting in a large group of pastors, that I have to walk in and say, I don't need to be first among these people. I don't need to be noticed. I don't need to be recognized. I will have to like be ready and say, I'm not in competition with any of these people. My church is not in competition with any of these people. And when I was a younger man, I have to say, this was a struggle for me. Walking into a room like that, wanting to be recognized, wanting to get a name for myself, wanting to stand out, wanting to be great. And that's fine if I'm pursuing greatness to glorify God, to extend his kingdom. But if it's about me, then it's all wrong. And I try, and it's difficult at times, more difficult than I'd like to admit, when I walk in to say, I'm not here to be served, but I'm here to actually serve. As I walk in, who cares if anyone knows me, but maybe I could connect with somebody who needs me today. Maybe I could be a blessing to somebody here today. Wish that came easier than it did, but I have to coach myself. What is true greatness? Being recognized or serving? Having a name for ourselves or serving? Where do you struggle to want to be the greatest? 
It could be a place in our relationships, our calling, our work, your family, your team, your church. It could just be an attitude of, I want to be the greatest looking person in the room. That's all I ask, (laughs) is when I walk into any room on any given place that I be the most beautiful, the most handsome, the most fit, whatever it is, I don't know. I want to be the smartest at work. I want to crush the competition. I, I want to be CEO or at least be her right or left hand. How do we stop the madness? Well, there's only one way out, and it's through Jesus. In Mark 10, we're going to skip ahead a couple passages. It says in verses 34b through 45, and he's reiterating what he just taught us in this passage, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All of our striving for greatness is really an attempt for acceptance, if you think about it. And we get it all wrong. But all of our striving to be great, to be better, to be recognized, get a name, it's so that someone might finally say, You did it. You can rest. You're the greatest. You're accepted, you're loved, you're powerful, or whatever. But look at the great people in the world. The goats, the greatest of all time. And don't you see how it's never enough? I'm telling you guys, Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. He just is. You may not like him. You may not like his coach. You may love him. I know some of you really do. But here's the reality. He is the greatest. And yet, it's not enough. I still have so much to prove. Really? (laughs) Dude, you're the greatest. You did it. No, I've got so much to prove. So what Jesus did on the cross is this. He was rejected so that we could be fully accepted. And finally, he was cursed, scorned, and crucified. What we deserved. So that you can be let in. And that you can rest Jesus shows us what greatness is in a form that, thank God, we'll never have to do. He died for the sins of the whole world as the greatest man who ever lived. The perfect example of human greatness. The perfect servant, the perfect slave, the perfect servant of God, and he served us. And look at Jesus' greatness versus the world's greatness. The world, money will make you great. But Jesus says, no, you can't serve God in money. Blessed are the poor. The world, I'm great. I'm incredible. My people are great. My race is great. My tribe is great. My country is great. And Jesus says, no, one table, one baptism. There's no distinction. I created all, all people are created in my image. And those of us who are in Christ, we have one baptism, one people, one people of God. The world says stuff is great, power is great. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Jesus says, or the world says power is great. And Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the world says, and our own hearts say, you can rest after you've bested everybody else. You can rest after you've proven yourself. And thank God, Jesus says, you can rest when you accept me. You can rest 
and true freedom and rest is found in me. And then you're free to serve other people. You can rest when you've trusted in me because I've done it. I've accomplished it. I did it for you. And now go about serving me and others in the world. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we have to confess that on a daily basis we get this wrong. That our view of greatness is backwards. But we thank you for this reminder, Father, and we pray for a reorientation of our hearts and our lives around true greatness, true freedom, and true acceptance. Oh, Lord, may we rest in the reality that you have done it on our behalf. You've accomplished it. And may our striving for greatness be changed and reoriented, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.